Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer, after a period of disruption caused by Michael's crippling addiction to sleeping pills. It's not my crippling addiction to sleeping, I tell you. If it was the sleeping tablets were the problem, there would be no problem. I'm very fond of these things. I'm looking at them here as I sit. Dillnacht, which sounds a little bit Christmassy, doesn't it? Stillenacht, Heiligenacht, film closed tablets. I'm under slightly the, the effect as we speak, Gary. It's, it's a warm and wrapping effect. No, I would say nothing against the sleeping tablets. Sleeping tablets are most excellent. So we're going to get through this quickly because I'm not sure how long Michael can keep this together for. So just as a, a small note, on something we brought uh, brought up, I think, months and months ago. It was one of our ones to watch, Michael. Okay. We were talking about the issue in um, Bosnia, Bosnia-Herzegovina. And we were saying that um, the <laughs> there was a, a bit of an issue where a law was passed by the official who is over that region just before he left. And we were saying this is disastrous law it is going to um it's going to be horribly received on the ground and depending how badly this goes there is a chance that you could see uh, the two sides start to pull away from each other and we've kind of, I think we've covered it once or twice since then because things have been going on in the region that but most people haven't paid any attention to it so on friday Sorry, actually, on on Saturday, yesterday, uh, the EU, the US, the UK, Germany, France, and Italy came out to formally condemn uh, the um, the Bosnian Serbs for starting a process of withdrawing from the key national institutes of Bosnia Herzegovina. So they're going to pull out. The Bosnian Serbs are going to pull out of the tax system, the judiciary, and the army. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to end in any particular way. But I am saying if perhaps some random podcasters in Ireland could come to the conclusion that what was happening was going to go in this direction, there probably should have been a stronger attempt to ensure this didn't happen. Right now, all that's simply happening is a commitment by Bosnian Serbs to withdraw from certain areas of civic life in Bosnia-Herzegovina, right? So, for example, they're withdrawing from the armed forces of Bosnia-Herzegovina. It hasn't yet been a... What we haven't yet got to the point is where they said, well, we're not getting involved with that army, but next door to us, or fairly nearby, we have the Republic of Serbia, and we thought we might get involved with their army, or their tax system. Well, you see, that kind of depends how you read the uh, the last statement. So this is in an autonomous region of the... Um, of the country. It's called the Republica, I can't even pronounce the last word, so forgive me if this is wrong, um, Serbska. So they have said that they are going to transfer the competencies to themselves. If they're transferring the competencies to themselves, you could theoretically use that to, uh, should we say, perhaps recognize your own army. Hmm. I, do you know what, Gary? Nothing. No sentence that you have said or I have said is a sentence which I would like to be taking or hearing about the former bits of Yugoslavia in the year of our Lord 2021. The space and the pace at which this could go from being Bosnian separatists decide to have a own army to Bos- Serbia invades Bosnia, I just think it's... Uh, and it's to say that war is hell and not um, war is bad and war is unpleasant we call all, all sorts of unpleasant things is is a truism of our existence of course but anybody who has ever read even the shortest 
history of war in this continent of ours tells us wars in that particular part of the world tend to have a quality that is all of their own and even quite short wars can get down into the depths of human depravity violence and uh, mayhem that you really don't want to see there was um there was an interesting um interview with the head of the um, Bosnian Serbs, end of last month, I'll link it below with the Guardian, and he said that um, if the EU cuts funding or if there are sanctions, he'll just go to Russia and China. And then he said, and I even think that I would like that happening because when I go to Putin, there are no requests. He just says, "What is it I can help with?" He's never cheated me, and I don't know what else to base trust on if not that. Yes. And this, this kind of ties back to when we were talking about that law being put into place, Michael, and the official was saying about he understood there could be difficulties due to this, but he felt it was the just thing to do. And we were like, well, fuck that. That's ridiculous. You want these people not to slaughter each other again. And if that requires that we don't formally find an event that they consider to be important to have constituted a war crime, well, then you fucking do that because all of this wonderful thing about, you know, the abstract moral side of justice is not going to be very comforting if they slaughter each other again. You can have a wonderful feeling of, well, I did the right thing to achieve that aim. God, there's a lot of children dead, isn't there? Oh, it was such a stupid thing to do. This is not This is not going to happen immediately. This is starting the process. Yeah, I, I, yes, it is starting the process, right? But just, anybody's interested, there are some very good documentaries available on YouTube. There's one particular done, I think, by BBC, which goes through the process, starting with the, shall we say, the secession of uh, Slovenia. And then the outbreak of the Russian war. Yes, it has been done at a certain pace now. This, the capacity for something like this to pick up speed would frighten you. I, mean, I remember when this originally came about, and we were like, well, this is going to happen, they're not going to like it, and it's brinkmanship, you, you run all these risks. And the general response from most other institutions I saw was a sort of, well, you know, it was a war crime, so they're just going to have to get on with it. And then there was this slow sort of, I think it's like we bring it up every couple of months of, and now it's this bad, and now it's this bad. And by this point, I mean, the Americans were trying to stop desperately that vote from going through, and they couldn't do it, because it's very easy to not do something or to stop it when it starts, but you let it build up, you let it build up some momentum, you're, you're suddenly in a very difficult situation. And now that this vote has happened, now everyone is basically on the clock. And if this happens, well, it's, um, I mean, there's no guarantee of violence. Oh, that's so reassuring, Gary. There's no guarantee of violence. You can't be absolutely certain. No, you'll just have two countries beside each other, which have a, a mutual dislike for each other, where one will have um, torn away from it in the Balkans. And, and it's... And it's Bosnia again. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? I heard one of those people saying, I heard, I, I actually heard a good interview where you, you were referring to those people saying, oh, well, you know, well these things were war crimes. They just have to get used to it and accept that. And, you know, there's part of me, Gary, which kind of gets, I, I know where they're coming from. And it's all very well to say that if you're in Dusseldorf in 1946, where the German nation has been destroyed, the, the nation itself had evolved into a terror nation and what they've been involved in was obviously non-equivocally uh, acts of terror against humanity and but, and this is the most important however in, 19, in, in 1946 absolutely incapable 
of doing anything about anything anybody wants to say. We're not, we're not, we're talking about mini statelets where everybody is still incredibly touchy about their notion of the rights and the wrongs of the, of, of what happened in the last war and in the second world war before that and in what happened and who caused the first world war right back to the last time that the Serbs and the Vlachs went on the battlefield to oppose the Ottoman 800 years ago and did so successfully but ended up with, I mean this is not these are these are not people without memory Gary these are not people without a proven capacity to jolly well harbour a grudge in a spectacular way and wake up in the middle of the night come down to your bed and cut your head off for it lovely people as well though by the way lovely people we've talked before about how at official level particularly in institutions like the eu and un there is a belief in international law which is basically religious they have they, they legitimately believe that states and the people in those states are fully bound by international law and that's never been the case because international law is not really law at all. It's more of a suggestion, at least if you have enough power. And the difference with international law to national law is in national law, the state has the monopoly on violence. And if you don't comply, you will be made comply. In international law, if you have enough power, there's no way of complying you, uh, forcing you to comply. Or if you can get yourself in a situation where you don't have the power, but competing interests with the power have an interest in you, you can stop anything being done to yourself. And they legitimately and religiously believe that these things hold people. So you got a sense when this law was passed that, as you said, Michael, it was a, well, that's the law. You can't, you have to do this. And now this is a bit of, oh, we're just going to see it. And we're going to, we're going to remove the, uh, our, um, our acceptance that you uh, have competency in the field of taxation or military. My, my favourite is the idea that international norms become binding law over time without anyone ever formally declaring their laws or agreeing to them. They're, they're always good fun. But um, now international law is a funny area um, because it's going to end horrendously at the end and it's going to be very enjoyable to watch. But anyway, that was. I just wanted to keep you updated on uh, the Bosnian situation. I haven't really seen or heard much reporting on this. I mean, The Guardian has uh, has interviewed some of the people involved, but even then it seems like you kind of suspect that there's one person in The Guardian who's interested in this and occasionally writes on it more than anyone is paying a great deal of attention to this. I think, oh gosh, months ago, The Wall Street Journal had something on it as well, but that's, other than that, I haven't seen anything. Now, there may be, it may be out there, but I just haven't seen it. Speaking of things in the, um, in important geopolitical things that people aren't really paying attention to although this has a bit more attention uh, being paid to it although the lack of attention i think is different in bosnia i think it's because people aren't aware and most people don't care in lithuania however i think there is a idea that the situation is delicate and perhaps things should not be publicly said about it so for those who haven't been aware lithuania and china are having a bit of a problem lithuania is saying that china went to companies and told them to pull out of the lithuanian market to stop trade with lithuania or they would be cut out of the chinese market that in effect china is trying to economically blockade lithuania now they are trying to do that because lithuania recently allowed the opening of a Taiwanese representative office in Lithuania. Now, part of the problem is that they allowed that to happen at all. Part of the problem is that they allowed it to be called Taiwanese. The Chinese prefer it be called the Taipei representative office because China's policy is that there's one China and Taiwan is part of that. And so let's not say anything that's not in line with that 
unclear to what extent this is happening or exactly what is going on here. But it does appear that China have basically tried to impose economic sanctions in some sort of informal uh, sense. Now, the EU has gone to the WTO, the World Trade Organization, about this, but it's not really getting mentioned. No one is really talking about it. And it puts the EU in a very difficult place. So here's the thing. Chinese trade is worth incredible amounts of money to the EU. The EU has been very happy to wave away principles in the interest of expanding their trade in China. Some countries in the EU have been more open to that than others. But everyone has just been happy to get along and not really discuss any of the problematic issues with China. Ireland has been very happy to get involved with China and to ignore some of its concerns. However, here's the problem. If China implies sanctions on an EU country and tries to effectively economically blockade, that threatens the EU. And if the EU won't come behind Lithuania, that undermines the integrity of the EU. But if they come behind Lithuania, they're in a trade war with China. So it'll be very interesting to see which set of principles come out on top. Will it be the integrity of the EU or will it be money? Anything which involves trade in China is going to be tricky. And no matter how much one likes to cling dearly to one's principles, you know, there's a hell of a lot of trade out there for maybe not that many principles. The problem is not, well, the problem is peculiarly ca- the case now. As the government, as uh, the union and the rest of the world, maybe, hopefully, is edging towards an exit from the pandemic. The last thing you want to do is to go around getting involved in economic activities like trade wars, with wars either first or second largest trading block, depending on how you measure it, which might lead to reduction in growth or and i think this is not something which is is unconsidered anyway that maybe the chinese economy isn't quite as strong and shiny and robust as people had been made to believe that it is as extended or overextended as people had previously believed it was and the, the last thing in the world you need now is some kind of serious ongoing battle with china that's going to cause china potentially to lose gdp points and to start getting a bit of a confidence crisis i think the, <laughs> this is yet again gary a place where the old principle of the diplomatic time machine is really the best solution. So what's the best solution to Taiwan, to Lithuania, allowing them to open up a Taiwanese uh, office? Best answer is to go back in time and not let them do it at all. And if they want to do something, let them oh, call it the Taipei Cultural Institute and put it on a backstretch. Well, you see, the problem that they have there, Michael, that there's a couple of things happening here. Lithuania is saying that companies are asked to, to cut links with them. Lithuania is also saying that they now can't get anything into China, that China isn't uh, even processing diplomatic cargo from Lithuania. Um, some of the officials from the EU have been talking about this to reporters. They, they were saying that the Lithuanians had said that the shipments are not being cleared through Chinese customs. Import applications from Lithuania are being rejected. But the Chinese are denying any of this is happening. They would say that, wouldn't they, my lord? And Lithuania doesn't seem all that bothered by it. So I think everyone in the EU might be happy if this went away, but Lithuania doesn't seem bothered. I'm sure that's, that falls into very much into the category at the moment in Europe of how not to win friends and make win friends and influence people. 
that uh, if it's all could be just swept away underneath the the carpet and that for most people in the EU would like it to be seen to be but if the Lithuanians get a cob on them about it and they decide they're going to press forward and defend their rights I'm sure everybody will happily roll up their sleeves and join in the battle against China all for the right of the Lithuanians to have a time when he's office. Politica reported a um an official from um Lithuanian civil uh, government talking about why they could do this. Do you know how much money China invests in Lithuania in a year? Um, money that China directly invests. Not the Chinese government. Total Chinese investment. Really, absolutely. One point two billion. Three million euro. Lithuania invests forty million euro in China a year. So it's not, yeah, right. It's not like, it's not Germany, China. So Lithuania seemed to basically be taking the policy of, um, (laughs) yeah, but we don't care though. (laughs) Oh, that's very good. Three million. I will do it out. That's very good. I like that. (laughs) I would imagine at this point, France and Germany are like, lads, can you just straighten that shit out? And they're like, ah. Like, it's for three million? Like, we'll get get to it eventually. (laughs) The Germans are going, yeah, yeah. The thing is, for us, big more than three million. Really? Yeah, yeah. You, 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 you're surprised, aren't you? Between the BMWs and the Porsches and the Mercedes. Yeah, yeah, it adds up quickly. It adds up. Yeah, the Bosch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the... the Lithuanians, it turns out, also really don't like communism. <laughs> and the Lithuanians seem to just be going anytime anyone goes to them again. They're doing this to an EU state. I thought we were, I thought there was solidarity here. It's like, do you ever see that picture of a, a goose and it just says, I think I will cause problems for no reason? This this definitely has the feeling of people just basically dicking around. But on the same time, you can make a strong argument they're right. It's just not in anyone else's interest to accept they're right. Being right has never been known to help in any situation. The, all it does has, is, is just emphasise the fact that you're just more annoying. Being right is no good. Anybody can be right. I'd say if this continues at the current trajectory in a short while, the Lithuanians are just going to be talking about genocides every other day and human rights issues. And where exactly, uh, you know, is there slave labour used in the things they're making for Europe? Michael, you want to talk about uh, Joanna and her letter. You know, I'm a bit of a fan, Gary, of Joanna Tuffy. I think that's why I disagree with her, certainly, on a number of subjects. Also, I have to say, I wait and wait for the terrible disagreement. And it rarely, rarely, rarely arrives. I've heard her on the TV and the radio. She always seems to me to be a rock of sense. Anyway, she has a letter in the Irish Times, the, the, which the editors have headlined, the smear of being called far right. And I think that it's, uh, it's she's adverting to a concern of her which yourself, myself, the bald McGurk, uh, characters as exotic as David Quinn and Mary Kelly have referred to. And that is this tendency that we've now got to. To anybody who objects to anything to do with COVID restriction is now far right. And it's being used, as she says, sometimes this label is being used for people who oppose restrictions that were at one time considered disproportionate by public health experts. She makes the excellent point, and it seems to me the unanswerable point. Neffet, Hikwa and the WHO previously opposed masks 
for primary school children on the grounds of negative impact on the learning experience of children. Now apparently, and continuing to quote, if you oppose masks for children in primary school, you are a fellow traveller of the far right. Restrictions in response to COVID are how our political system organises societies based on public health advice. I, I don't know how you could argue with that, Gary. It seems to me on the face of it that is clearly and obviously true. We are we're treating public health advice which changes and evolves, as you would hope it would do as we gain more information about different things and about different context. You would say, okay, well, we thought that was important. It's not important, so we won't do it. Or we hadn't realised how important this was. We should do more of it. So public health advice will change and evolve. Well, frankly, anything which is based on empirical experience should, should. But it's been treated like holy dogma. And then it's being politicised, which is a very ugly look indeed. On top of that, it also gives a grandeur to the far right in Ireland, which it does not deserve. Jeffy has a... a a good point in that if you start calling everyone far right the term loses all resonance eventually and people then start asking questions like yes but you said that person was far right as well and maybe they are reasonable and in a lot of cases those people are going to be reasonable but in some cases they won't be so you no longer have it as a descriptive tool ever because if everyone is far right no one is actually far right the attempts to convince people who are not vaccinated to get vaccinated have been laughable in part and I think in other parts have been so poorly put across that they would nearly convince people to go against them just because those people are so insufferable. Like did you, the Fintan O'Toole had an article there the other day and it was called The Three Anti-Vaccine Types. Egoists, Paranoics, and fascists. And the subheading was, if we understand why people won't get jabbed, we might be able to reach some of them. Well, we're not going to be able to reach those fascists, but some of the idiots might get on board. And you read it. And this this show, Michael, has always been, I think, as I said, I think we were the first media show in Ireland to say people should wear masks when the government was saying they would kill you. We paid a lot of attention to the vaccination program. I don't think we've ever verged into anything that could legitimately be described as an anti-vax narrative. And yeah, I read that piece by Fintan O'Toole and there was a little bit of me that was like, I kind of wished I was more against it just so, just because it is written from such a high-handed place of these people are fucking idiots and they should do what we tell them and I am right. That I think there is a bit of just an instinctive desire to go, mm, no you're not though, are you? I think the closest we've ever come to being uh, anti a suggestion that we might be better off morally and indeed strategically from a global point of view giving uh vaccinations more quickly to third world countries than to vaccinating people in Ireland who were not represented, who weren't a threat, whose health wasn't threatened. And even on that one, I think we were slightly divided one from the other. Honest to God, Gary. We spoke against the vaccine passes because I don't think they, uh, I don't think it even rises to the level of moral argument. I just don't think they've ever been shown to work. Well, here's an example. It's a vaccine pass. But anybody who wants, if you want to understand politics and you don't want to bother the bother of going to the UCD to get a degree in it, just watch Yes, Minister. And it will explain all of the reasons why people do things politically. And just in synthesis, what stage the minister, the minister says to his chief civil servant, but we do this for the sake of health. No, Minister, we don't. We do it so we all feel like we've done something. So most of, most of this public health measures that uh, we have been introduced, I personally believe I have, to a greater or lesser extent, being introduced because by their introduction, they give us a sense that something is being done to make it safe and make it protect. So 
we didn't want to just simply let people willy-nilly go back into pubs or restaurants because there was that kind of madness where could that end so what we do is we'll, we'll, we'll give you a little passport how many times have you heard the alligators in the sewers argument Gary they must be working because we don't have any alligators in the sewers yeah every time I, I, I hear Neffet announce or the government announce technically that there's going to be some new business restriction I go back to earlier in the pandemic when they were asked where outbreaks were happening and what businesses were you, you were seeing the majority of these outbreaks in, and they just said well we don't collect that information but it's also I suppose the other thing that Councillor John Tuffy's uh, letter and I, I would <laughs> to hell with it to hell with proprietary I would say to the people of Lucan they should turn that councillor into deputy God knows that the quality of the dollar is such as you cannot afford to be letting the likes of Joanna Tuffy roam wild on the on the uh, corner of Kildare when she should be inside Kildare Street but to the point is that this is incredibly lazy low performative politics which is being produced instead of actually being competent and doing something which is practical and practicable and sensible we have decided that the handy thing is we'll just call them all far right but the problem is we're out we have now i would suggest gary we're now coming out the other end of that at one stage maybe that might have been a power promoter thing do you remember was it carl dieter got so sick and tired of people describing the politics of people who were protesting on particular issues without any sign or symbol to suggest that they actually had empirical data to support their contention decided to go down to the docks with a, a pen and a couple of pieces of paper and just went around and asked people and to everybody's shock and horror he discovered that actually no the, the crowd the politics of the people who were that protest were nothing like the the, the politics that were being carried by the media but they had to be because they were they were there and they were doing that bad thing it's become I think in Irish politics and in Irish civic society it's become a go-to um, delegitimization term where they're not saying these people are really far right as in in any real sense but they're the wrong sorts of people they're disrespectable people who you shouldn't listen to because you know god knows what else they believe there's a bit of an insinuation there but at this point everything is far right i don't know what isn't far right i mean i was listening to one of the um for those who don't know for the last couple of months there have been a series of uh lectures and meetings amongst irish civics society groups on how to combat the rise of the far right in Ireland and Michael during the months the list of things I have heard are far right is amazing and nearly all-encompassing anything they don't like is either far right or a fellow traveler of the far right or on the road to the far right actually the my the favorite thing I am um, I heard in one of the meetings it was the head of Einar and he was talking about gripped uh, Einar is the Irish network against racism and I think we've published some stuff on Einar and also how every year they bring out this I report of racism mm-hmm. and it's um, you go online and you can report racist incidents online and they use this to um, go to the government every year and we made the point that I none of this is verifiable there's no verability to it at all I think they used to not even ask for your contact details so they couldn't have verified it if, if you want if they wanted but now I think they actually do ask and I think they took some offense at that because he was saying um, gripped or grift as I like to call it because gripped asses people to donate to it but I heard it and I was just looking at it and the four panellists every single person talking about this receives money from the state substantial amounts of their income come from the state in some instances the 100% and one of them went on to say well the very commonality of the far right is that you look at them, look at them and it's the grift they're always asking for money they're always asking to contribute and get involved and then there was a pause and we do the same thing but not not exactly the same like with us it's not a grift <laughs> 
<laughs> you were so close to a moment of self-realization there. Just for a second there, just for a second, there's a little, you're danced, he danced to the edge of self-knowledge, but he pulled back. The wheels were turning and then there was a sudden like juddering halt, but you got right back on. And a road. shout perhaps from some of his comrades, quick, catch him lads, he's about to fall Come in. Oh, Tool's article is is actually I would rarely recommend it, but the one he um the anti-vaccine types, the egotists, the paranoics, and fascists. I mean, Finton is is a you know in a in a highly competitive world, Finton is a particularly stupid and bad journalist. So uh, you know he has standards to keep up. But this one, I think, this is one of his best for a while. I think that I would recommend highly, highly to it. And it's it's when you read an article like this, I mean, I've said. To Gary and to others for years, Finton is on my list of what I call the small mysteries of Irish life. And sometimes when you see something like this, you think, "Ah, yeah, I can see." There's a certain there's a certain grandeur to his uh, crass stupidity that maybe others don't quite. Achieve. There's confidence to it. Like most people, halfway through this article, you, there'd be a moment where you'd stop and you'd look at it and you might go, am I wrong? Like, is this insane? Like what I'm writing? But Finton doesn't have that. And turns out that's a very valuable commodity. It, it is. For the man who, as a mutual friend of ours, enjoys tremendously pointing out, lost to debate on the nature of republicanism to the wolf tones on the late late on one of famous occasions. Is there a bit of that available on the on, on the YouTube? I'll, I'll have a look and see if I can find it on YouTube. <laughs> Ireland's premier intellectual. God between us and all her. Anyway, that's the, anyway, that's so, Scott the Joy, uh, Councillor Joanna Tuffy, as usual being in rock sense. Uh, although, God knows, you know what? The weird thing is, Joanna Tuffy probably reads O'Toole with pleasure and nods as she drinks her coffee and thinks, God, Finton got it right there. So there you go. That's that's the joy of the diversity of human experience. But uh, anyway, that's Cosmo Janito and her fine letter in the Irish Times. Probably the ones to read it. We will be back on Wednesday. Well, I probably won't be back on Wednesday because I have to go and see my, with fingers crossed, I'll be seeing my nice consultants on Wednesday but uh, perhaps Friday when I should be I should have. and um, <laughs> I was criticised Gary I was criticised because uh, I was in a conversation with somebody said, and they said uh, they would say a prayer for me and I said oh thank you very much that much much, much appreciated and the person overhearing this seemed to there was this a slightly um, I don't know hypocritical or grasping element to it in that I would not be noted for the depth of my religious faith and this person was offering prayers, and I shouldn't have been saying, go away for me with your prayers. But it just reminded me, there's this wonderful piece at the back of, uh, there's a book by Anthony Kenny, great British philosopher, called The God of the Philosophers, where he addresses the idea of the atheist or the agnostic praying. He said, it's always kind of been a bit of a comic figure, you know, the notion of prayer. But he says, in rather a lovely image, I said, you know, if you're, you're lost on a, on a desert island, and you have absolutely no reason to believe there is anybody on the rest of the island or on the other side of the island that might come to your aid. You know, reason to believe that. There's no evidence to suggest that. But it, we would not regard it as irrational, surely, every so often, just to let out a few shouts, just to let somebody know that you're here, just in case. So, and on that, in that, on that basis, there are people out there who are good at desert island shouting, uh, particularly in the sense. I've been. I have had several people who have contacted me and saying very kindly that they were that they were holy being in their in their prayers. I'd like to thank them if any of them are listening here for that and say that I do actually appreciate it very much and that I'm hoping indeed that there is somebody on the other side of the island 
because otherwise the whole thing is a damn dark affair, isn't it, Gary? Of course, Gary has no problem with the thing being a damn dark affair, does it? <laughs> I think there's something to be said for a damn dark affair at certain points. Otherwise, but otherwise, please God, we should be back on Friday. Bye-bye. All the best.